This saying, Christ before me, Christ behind me, is something that we carry with us. And remember the promises, your faithful promise, your faithful word, that you will never leave us, never forsake us, that your grace goes before us to prepare the way. Christ before me, it follows behind us to ensure we are safely brought to the destination that you want us to be in. For whatever purpose you have designed for us, Christ behind me, Father God, give us open hearts, open ears, humble hearts to receive the word that you've given to Pastor Joe today and we thank you in the name of your son amen um, so that song has a great way of explaining what hopefulness we have in the midst of helpfulness Jesus I need you every moment hear this grace bought heart sing out and that's really a great great concept when it comes to what today's message is about. I'm Joe Davis, the pastor here. We're continuing our series called Surviving in Egypt. And obviously Egypt is a picture or a symbol of the world, surviving in the world. That's what Joseph was doing in this story. And the, uh, the title this week is called Obedience in Egypt, Obedience in the World. So <clears throat> a question for you, what motivates us to be obedient? In a world designed to birth disobedience, where's the incentive for God's children to live in obedience? I mean, if we're honest, and I think we can admit it, we live, frankly, in anticipation of God's blessing for our obedience. Even if we don't say it outside, subconsciously we're thinking, you know, hope dad's watching. <laughs> if not overtly, subconsciously, we do have expectations of what God should do for us as we quote-unquote live for him. The problem is centuries of horrible theology have created this expectation that obedience results in earthly blessing. More on this theology later. And what happens as a result is it becomes a major part of our motivation for obedience while we're in Egypt. These blessings that somehow we are entitled to, we have earned them. We're living for Jesus. In the process, our obedience, I put that in quotes, can become the genie in the bottle for Christians, especially those of us that are Christians in America. If we're just do enough obedience just right, rub the obedience bottle just enough, we're going to get some blessings. And when our obedience doesn't result in these quote-unquote blessings, we slip into spiritual victimhood. We grow frustrated with our job, our finances, our relationships, our car breaking down, our families, we grow frustrated with the way God is allowing Egypt to treat us. It leaves some of us scratching our head, questioning God, growing bitter, growing cynical. Come on, God, I'm trying to serve you here. Can't you just get me a break while I'm here in Egypt? And then sooner or later, you'll come to the point, eh, why should I bother? If Egypt's going to keep winning, I might as well just do what Egypt wants me to do. This next part of the story deals with 
how Joseph is dealing with this idea of obedience in Egypt. How Egypt rewarded his obedience with treachery and suffering. Let's look at the passage today. This is Potiphar's, but this is after he had said no to Potiphar's wife, who was trying to seduce him day after day after day. And she was upset. She's not happy about how he has rejected her. So she called the men of the household and said to them, See, he, her husband, has brought among us a Hebrew, a Jew, to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, her husband. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The exact story she told the rest of the male staff. As soon as his master heard these words, this is Potiphar hearing these words, that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. Potiphar was angry. His anger was kindled, the scripture says. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in that prison. This happens right after Joseph says, you know what? I'm not going to betray my master. I'm not going to betray my God. I'm not going to sleep with Potiphar's wife. I'm going to remain obedient to what God has called me to do. And the result is he's thrown in prison and he's framed for a rape, basically. What we see in the historical side of this is it is obedience without reward. No benefit. And how does this happen? First of all, there is an evil conspiracy. This is kind of what we talked about last week, about a roaring lion seeking whom he may tear limb from limb. And we talked about temptation. This is all part of that. Do you think, by the way, this was, do you think Joseph was the first male servant Potiphar's wife tried to seduce? Like this is somehow out of her character? I, you know, normally she would never do this, but Joseph was so smart and so good looking. No, she was used to getting her way. She was used to getting what she wanted. And now she is angry at Joseph's obedience. It has destroyed her ego. She feels rejected and scorned. In addition to that, she cannot afford to allow the truth of what happened to get back to Potiphar, that she was trying to seduce Joseph. If that happens, she's finished. She's in jail. So you can see, there is a lot at stake for her to come up with some sort of evil scheme. Because she's angry, she wants revenge, and she's got to protect her world. To avoid that possibility, she needs to shut Joseph up, get him out of her house, and fast. She gets with the other servants to turn on him by pointing him out. As a stranger, a Jew who has been brought in, an outsider, it's no stretch to see probably that many of those guys were already jealous of Joseph in the first place, right? I mean, he's a brand newcomer to the house, and all of a sudden he's Potiphar's favorite, and he's in charge of everything. We've been here for years, and he comes, and all of a sudden we're taking orders from him. That's garbage. Yeah, I'm going with Potiphar's wife. He is a horrible guy. You see, guys, let me explain something, what's going on here. Joseph is alone. 
Joseph is living in Egypt, but he's not part of Egypt. And what she does is she actually projects onto him what she was actually trying to do herself. She stages this attempted rape, this character assassination, and has no concern for the consequences of an innocent man. That is the evil conspiracy that has been hatched by her and all the servants in the house. And then Potiphar comes home and he really has no choice. She weaves this false narrative, this false claim, assembles a host of false witnesses, creates a very convincing frame job. Potiphar believes the lie about Joseph and knows that he faces himself. Potiphar faces potential shame, loss of prestige if he doesn't act harshly. You mean a guy tried to do that to your wife and you didn't throw him in prison? I'd have had him killed. So Potiphar's feeling angry. And remember, they were friends, so he's also feeling what? Betrayed. Let down. He fires Joseph from his job and throws him into the prison. He has no choice. His emotions and his place in society force him to do this. And then these are Joseph's consequences for his righteousness, for his obedience. Now Joseph is back in the valley, unjustly accused, just like Jesus was. And now he's rotting in an ancient prison. This isn't Club Med. I mean, he's been arrested for attempted rape of an Egyptian general's wife. He's not playing backgammon. He's in dungeons. His reputation is destroyed. He's a Jewish rapist. Don't ever trust him. He now has a criminal record. Nobody will ever trust this guy again. As far as Egypt goes, he's done. All because a lonely wife was upset that Joseph wouldn't give in to her temptation. This whole thing is unfair. And it's maddening. It's such ridiculous injustice. Like sometimes you've ever seen a movie where the bad guy gets the upper hand, like, oh, man, he better get, oh, man, the good guy better somehow end. If the writers end this on this way, where the unjust guy gets punished and the bad guy, I'm going to be so angry. I'm not going to the sequel. <laughs> so if this were a movie watching, you would think, man, that is just not right. They've got 40 minutes to resolve this. <laughs> Imagine what Joseph's feeling. What's he going through? God, all I did was stay righteous. And now I'm in this dungeon? Which brings us to the spiritual application of this passage. What about God? What's God doing? What's going on? I want to talk about expectations of obedience in Egypt. The first thing you need to understand as Christians, if we are going to try to be obedient, you need to expect rejection. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Let me explain this to you. Obedience to God is different than what the world sees as ethical or good or moral. It's not the same. They are, in fact, very different standards. In fact, obedience to God 
Christian obedience to God, the God of the Bible, is often seen by Egypt as irrational, foolish. It's smug, arrogant, pompous, self-righteous. What, do you think you're better than everyone else? That's how obedience to God is seen by many in the world. And Joseph's story reveals that Egypt itself is in no hurry to reward his obedience to God. It's just not set up that way. In fact, the world hates the obedience of God's children. There are lots of reasons for this that we don't have time to get into today. I could be preaching from now till Easter on all the reasons why the world hates when God's children are obedient. Like, for example... The reality of having to deal with absolute truth. But the fact is, church, when God's children are obedient, we are outsiders in Egypt, just like Joseph was, just like Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. In John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the first thing I want you to see about expectations of obedience while you're in Egypt, expect rejection. The next thing I want you to do is I want you to expect hardship. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What, you're shocked things aren't going well in Egypt? Because obedience to God is different than what the world sees, because of that, you have to understand that the way it's set up is that tribulation is part of obedience. You know, John has a lot to say about tribulation in the book of Revelation. I mean, he's arrested and put in prison on, on Patmos, which is a penal colony. It's an island where they put, kind of like Alcatraz. That's, what, that's when they say, oh, he's on the Isle of Patmos. Oh, good, he's on vacation. <laughs> right in the book of Revelation in a hammock, you know, with a pina colada in his hand. No, he's in prison. John is actually, while he writes the book of Revelation, talking about the tribulation, is going through the same exact thing Joseph is. He's in prison for being obedient. And he writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation and the kingdom. You see what he says there? I'm partnering with you in service to God and in also tribulation. The kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, the waiting was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I am part of the tribulation and the kingdom because while on, I was preaching the gospel, so they put me here in this prison. What John really teaches us here is that believers, Christians, we better be prepared to go through tribulation that he describes in detail for the next several chapters in the book of Revelation. See, the antithesis is actually the popular view in Christianity, that somehow there's this magical thing called the rapture that rescues us from Egypt, rescues us before it gets really bad. Newsflash, it's always been bad. Talk to Joseph. Talk to John. 
Talk to Stephen. Talk to Peter. Talk to Paul. Talk to Jesus. It's always been pretty bad. This is an important lesson. Because the idea that we have been taught, well, if you are obedient and you follow Jesus, not only will your life be easier, but you will escape when it gets really bad in what we call the tribulation by this thing called the rapture. Don't worry, we won't have to go through it. No, John says expect it. Expect it. Matter of fact, Paul says it. If you don't believe me, Jesus says it. This is the nature of surviving in Egypt. The idea that you can go to church enough, be obedient enough, be good enough that things are going to go smooth, you're delusional. You live in Egypt. It sucks. <laughs> and the next thing I want you to expect is a cost. We expect obedience to be free. The example of Jesus, his disciples... And thousands of years of church history teach us a very important antithetical lesson. We should never let obedience be motivated by perceived benefits. In fact, what we should recognize is that obedience in Egypt will cost us. It's what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the ultimate cost, even death on a cross. Not just death, but torturous death. I mean, if Jesus' obedience had a cost, and we want to identify with Jesus, why wouldn't we think our own obedience is supposed to have a cost? Isn't that really what Scripture teaches us? Listen, I could have given you a dozen verses that explain to you, you better expect your obedience to be costly. Painful, inconvenient, untimely. But I'm not going to stop with all the negative. Let's talk about the personal application of this idea of obedience in Egypt. I want to talk about what our motivation for obedience should be. Like we said, our natural tendency is to expect earthly gratification to obedience. This was the uh, social media campaign this week. What expectations do you have of God in return for being obedient? Okay, so I'm going to put a picture up. It's not gruesome, but it's sad. And I want you to know, I could have put another dozen pictures up that would have been gruesome, frightening, and horrible. This is all recent events. Recently, in the past 10 days, there was a radical group that killed more than 120 Christians just in one village in coordinated attacks in northern Nigeria. What had happened was there was a leader who had falsely accused Christians in general of murdering 100 people ahead of Nigeria's presidential elections. It was an ISIS-affiliated terrorist group closely coordinated with Boko Haram. And they continued to wage attacks on other Christian villages in recent weeks. 
Hundreds of people slaughtered. Why? Because they were obedient in identifying with the cross. Yet, for the most part, the world has said nothing about it. Have you seen much about this? I haven't seen anything on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. I haven't seen much about it anywhere. No articles in the Washington Post, Washington Times, New York Times, nothing. But they were slaughtered. And the pictures of what I saw, I, I, could, I, I started to search for images to put up. I said, I can't, put, I can't use any of these on a Sunday morning. What do you think they did to deserve this? You know, there's a lot of people out there that teach, if you just follow Jesus and do what's right, the blessings are going to come flowing to you. Things are going to be great. You'll tap into the greatest you that you can be. It's clearly a very profitable message. They're preaching in stadiums. But it's false truth. These precious brothers and sisters in Nigeria were slaughtered because they were obedient. So why do I share this picture? This is the funeral. You can see everybody that's grieving. And the, obviously the rows of coffins goes a lot further. That's just the top part of it. It goes much further. Can you imagine the, the grief, the pain, the crying, the tears, the sorrow, the questioning? So with that in mind, here's what I have for you. I want you to have realistic expectations when it comes to your obedience. Surviving in Egypt is never going to be easy, even when you do everything right. I mean, the point of surviving in Egypt is not pursuing comfort, it is perseverance. That's what John said about waiting, the, the, the hope and the waiting in Jesus. But people lose heart because they don't understand that surviving in Egypt is rarely perfect. And sooner or later, if you have unrealistic expectations of what your obedience should bring you, you can use what you perceive as a lack of benefit as justification for just a little bit of compromise in your commitment to being obedient to God. When you face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, all the things that Paul lists in Romans, threats. When you face those things, do you ever respond with, why, God? Or is what we respond to why God with a little less intense? An alternator breaks. Parking ticket. Losing a job. Boy, life in Egypt sure is rough. Well, you better have realistic expectations because this is where we live. And the other thing I want you to know is don't expect instant gratification for all of a sudden you start doing right. All your life you hear that believers escape tribulation. It's easy to see how that would bleed into thinking that's how we can live in Egypt. 
And centuries of this bad teaching that I was talking about early create these unbiblical expectations that obedient life is trouble-free and you're entitled to escape trials and things can get better right away. Preachers teach that God's blessing and Egyptian riches (laughs) wait those who just do right and follow him and claim their due. You'll be flooded with riches from Egypt. Just do what God says. Ridiculous. It has led to a host of bad theological conclusions, like the health and wealth crowd. It creates a generation of believers wanting instant gratification for our perceived obedience. It's like people make a recently newly made resolve to change something in their lives to do the right thing, whether it's recovery or a sinful habit or how you relate to your husband or wife or whatever, and you say, today I'm going to start doing right, and the next day you're still living in Egypt. I thought doing right was the good thing. It's kind of like things go smoothly for a while, You know, maybe you make a good decision and maybe life in Egypt gets better for a moment and they attribute this new smooth living to this newly minted obedience. And then something bad happens. It's kind of like when we want immediate results when we first start a diet. (laughs) So, you know, I'm going on a trip at the end of the month, you know, and, and, you know, I know there's going to be, look, I got to take selfies the new version of my Android doesn't have the thin, the thin face, so I've got to lose some weight. So I started my diet on Monday. Wednesday, I'd lost nothing. Come on, how long do I got to do this? I lasted till Friday. I'll start again today. And tomorrow, I expect to be down five pounds. I won't be. You know what it is, though? We expect our obedience to result in tribulation liposuction. (laughs) Come on, I'm obedient. Now suck all the bad stuff out of my life, God. All hardships sucked out if we just do it right. See how foolish that is? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be inspired to obedience by hope and gratitude. John says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, we must remove expectation of blessing from our motivation to be obedient. In fact, I'm telling you, you should expect tribulation, persecution, and cost just so you're prepared. Instead, though, our motivation for obedience should be squarely founded on the hope that we recede from what Christ did on the cross. I mean, after all, part of our hope is the promise that ultimately we are rescued from tribulation and trouble and all the baggage that comes with surviving Egypt. Meanwhile, while we are here in Egypt, our obedience, get this, our obedience becomes an expression of the hope that we have by faith. We are motivated, and I I wrote this down because I wanted, we are motivated by the anticipatory thankfulness 
that inspires obedience under any circumstances. That's what hope is. After all, when it comes to our expectations for obedience, why we're trying to be obedient, why we should follow Jesus, it's not so that we can have a better house or a better car or maybe magically that 45-year-old car that we have won't break down. That's not why we're obedient. I mean, shouldn't Calvary be enough motivation? Jesus, I need you. Hear now this grace-bought heart cry out every moment. While I'm living in Egypt, every moment I need you. Calvary is the reason for our obedience. Heavenly Dad, First, we confess to you, we do have expectations of our obedience. Even though we may not want to admit it because it's, it's not the good Christian thing to do. Inside, we're thinking, if I can just do this, Heavenly Dad will see it. He'll increase my allowance. God, we don't want that to be the reason we're obedient anymore. We just want to be able to look back and the at the cross and say, Wow. And as rough as life may get in Egypt, we can know that because of hope and faith and knowing that you are going to rescue us, we can know that it is well with our soul, that you are going to be with us. We will and can endure life in Egypt, even when it's unfair and unjust. Help us be obedient while we're surviving 